Luke eleven forty five to fifty four. Luke eleven forty five. And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray. Our Father, as we approach you, we approach you through your word, and we know that you reveal your perfect will to us. And we thank you that you have revealed the gospel, that we believe in Christ, that he has died and, and risen again for our sins. Thank you for our salvation and the faith that we hold dear. We know that eternal life awaits us because we believe in him and we don't trust in ourselves. Not our wisdom, but your wisdom. Now, as we seek to understand this passage, we pray that we will indeed embrace your wisdom and do according to your will as the model the perfect model of Jesus Christ as displayed to us. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, when we think about the person of Christ, for the average Bible-believing Christian, he would say he believes that Jesus lived a sinless life. He lived a perfect life. And the life he lived that was so perfect that because he was a spotless lamb of God, he was able to die on the cross for our sins. We would all say yes to that. And many people in, the, in churches would say yes to that. He was perfect and he died on the cross for our sins. Now, when we make that confession that Jesus was perfect, sinless, spotless, did not transgress any law of God, we're talking about his behavior. We're talking about his speech. We're talking about his thoughts. We're talking about everything about him. Everything he did, he did perfectly. He did not sin in any regard. One little sin, one major sin, nothing. He did not sin at all. That is a true confession to say that, to assert that. But do we really believe that? Do we really believe Jesus was sinless? So that whatever he did we are to emulate. Whatever he did, we are supposed to copy. We should embrace and practice whatever he did. After all, isn't that what it means? You shall be holy for I am holy. You shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That, isn't that what it means? That he left you an example that you might follow in his footsteps? The scripture says all of these things, that we should follow in his footsteps. It doesn't mean to follow in his footsteps does not mean we're going to become a god one day, 
like Mormons believe and Hindus believe, we're not going to become a god. That's idolatry and blasphemy. It doesn't mean that we have uh, omnipotence like Jesus does. No. When, when it says we're going to be like Christ, it means in his virtues, in his morality, in the way that he thought, the way that he talked, and the way he walked. That's what it means, to be holy like God is holy. In those virtues that God possesses, that we need to possess ourselves, because we lost all of that in Adam in the Garden of Eden. From Adam onward, we have all been corrupted. So that's what we need. We need to restore that corruption to be like Christ. This is necessary to assert when we study this passage, because many times we hear these cliches. We hear cliches such as, watch how you are perceived. Show grace. Uh, figure out another way to do it. Let me pray about this. I, I will wait for the Holy Spirit to lead me. I will wait for the Holy Spirit to guide me. I'm, I'm going to consider carefully before I act. I'm not going to be rash about it. I'm not going to be brash about it. Watch. And then especially when the results that we want the good results that we want. And we all want peace and we all want harmony. We all want love. When those things don't happen in a particular incident, we automatically come to the conclusion that what we did, our approach, see, it, it was your approach that was wrong. Your method was wrong. That's not the way to do it, people say. These are cliches. When the result that we desire, the good result we desire, harmony, peace, love, reconciliation, forgiveness, when that doesn't happen in a particular conflict, then we think we did it wrong. But is that necessarily the case? Does the Bible say, watch your perception? Does the Bible say, show grace? Does the Bible use any of these phrases? Or does the Bible mean anything meant by these phrases? Does the Bible teach that at all? Well, let's look at our passage and see that the Bible shows us in Jesus' example quite the opposite. In fact, we will see in this example of Luke 11, 45-54, that Jesus is actually one to just speak the truth no matter who is present and no matter what the results. No matter what the results, because he trusts God for the results, even if the results end up in furthering the conflict, even if the results mean that there is an exacerbation of the contention. It doesn't matter. We just must do what God desires us to do. Well, in verse 45, we pick up in a long denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers. It begins in verse 37. Jesus is having lunch with a Pharisee, and other Pharisees are there. Other Pharisees and lawyers among the Pharisees, they are present. And Jesus has already denounced the Pharisees generally in verses 37 to 44 as being hypocrites, as being those who do not understand the weighty matters of the law, such as justice and the love of God. In fact, they major on the minors, and then they skew the majors and make people not understand the majors and even the minors. They just skew everything and distort everything. On the outside, they appear clean, but inside, really, they are full of filthiness and dead men's bones. That's what they are. Well, 
in the middle of this denunciation, verse 45, And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. The lawyer is trying to get Jesus to back off. The lawyer is trying to get Jesus to calm down. The lawyer is trying to get Jesus to say, Oh, I'm sorry, I went overboard. I went over the top. That was excessive. I was extreme. I shouldn't have used those words. I should not have used those analogies. No, really, all of you are nice men. You're gentlemen. You are in the favor of God. God loves you. And everything is just going to be just fine with what you're doing. Or they expected Jesus to do something kind to them or just leave the subject all alone or something of that nature to confess something that he did wrong. But he doesn't do that. He insulted the Pharisees. He insulted the lawyers among the Pharisees. He insulted them with what he said, which shows us that Jesus wasn't concerned whether he was insulting somebody if he needed to tell the truth. If the truth insults somebody, then that's what happens. If the truth insults, then that's what needs to happen. Now, we expect this in every area of life, do we not? We expect this in every area of life. When we go to our physicians, we don't expect the physician to tell us sweet and kind things and to gloss over what's wrong with our health. We expect the physician to tell us straight and even to correct us and reprimand us if we're not watching our diet, we're not exercising, we're not taking the medicines, whatever it is, the physician needs to confront us. And when he does, inevitably we will be insulted if we have been disobeying his instructions. We will be insulted. But he, that's his duty to do so. It's his duty to tell us the truth, the facts, the evidence surrounding our health. Wherever we go. If we go to the law office, do we not expect the lawyer to be honest and the lawyer to tell us exactly what, what we have done or what we have not done in accordance with the law? We expect him to be open and forthright with us. That's a, a good lawyer. Not all lawyers are that way, but that's what we expect. And when society has good lawyers, honest lawyers, then things will function in, in a better way without chaos and anarchy than when the lawyers are corrupt. We want them to tell us the truth. Even if they tell us, well, listen, it was your fault. That accident, that car accident was your fault. So I cannot help you. I cannot lie about it. If he's an honest attorney, he'll have to tell us that. And that will be stunning to us, right? It might offend us because we thought, oh, no, maybe I can, I can skew it. I can, I, can, I can fudge it and nudge it here or there and he'll help me. No, he needs to tell the truth. If we go to the car mechanic, doesn't the car mechanic have to tell us the truth? If our engine is blown, it doesn't help if he comes back and says, oh, you just need to replace a couple of spark plugs. It doesn't help us. He needs to tell us the truth. He needs to be honest, right? Even if it insults us because we only have $100 in the bank to spend on the car repair when the car repair for a blown engine might be two or $3,000. It's still offensive. It's still alarming. But we have to deal with it, whatever the truth is. That's what Jesus did here. He insulted everybody because everybody had to hear the truth. So whether somebody's insulted is not the standard. It's not the measuring stick on whether the thing should have been said in the first place. That is not a gauge. We should not use 
whether somebody was insulted by a statement as a gauge as to whether the statement should have been made in the first place. The question is, was it true with the intention of letting the person know what his problem was, what his sin was, so that he might resolve it before, between himself and God? That's really what we should be doing. That's what Jesus did in verse 45 as he hears this comment by the lawyer. Then, knowing the lawyer was just as bad as the rest of the Pharisees, and perhaps even worse, because they had to interpret the law. These are lawyers of the law of Moses. They, will handle, they, they would handle conflicts and disputes about interpretations of the law of Moses, because many of the laws had to deal with civil matters, and even criminal matters. A dispute between one neighbor and another, or even a crime committed, the lawyers would be there, they would be consulted to know what did God say through Moses as to how to resolve this dispute, this legal dispute. But what does he do? These people who should have known better, because they were familiar in some ways with the law of Moses, they did not do better. So what does Jesus do in verse 46? He turns up the heat. He increases the intensity. He does not back off. He does not say, oh, well, yes, uh, actually, I should not have said it that way. He turns up the heat, verse 46. But he said, but he said, yes, the lawyer wants him to back off, but he doesn't. But he said, woe to you lawyers as well. Your Bible likely has an exclamation. And Jesus after many of his statements, there is an exclamation, which means he said it with passion. He probably raised his voice. He probably looked them straight in the eye, gazed at them, and let them have it. Woe to you lawyers as well. There are also three woes in this passage, as there was in the previous one. Woe to you in verse 46. Woe to you in verse 47. And in verse 52. Threefold woes against the lawyers. A woe is a declaration of condemnation, punishment, a curse. It's not a good thing that he pronounces against them because of their sin. And what is their sin in verse 46? For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. They have all of these regulations and stipulations that they put on others in order to put a covering over their sin. Because when they put these extra regulations, traditions of men, on other people, it makes those people think, well, the teacher, he must be doing the same thing that he's telling us. He must be. People automatically assume that. But in their case, they weren't doing what the other people were told to do. They were teaching them to do certain things, but they themselves would not do those things. And th this is probably twofold. That is, that which is in the Bible and that which is outside the Bible, because they had their oral law, their oral traditions, traditions of the elders or the traditions of men. The Bible calls them by these various phrases that this is what they were uh, putting on them, placing on them on, on their shoulders so that they needed to do what was in the Bible, but also a bunch of uh, minutiae outside of the Bible they heaped on the people. And they pretended with the people, as hypocrites do, well, I do all of this. What I'm teaching you, I do everything. 
when they would isolate themselves from the people and and the people would not really know that they were actually full of hypocrisy. But Jesus uh, exposes their hypocrisy by saying, you impose these burdens, but you won't even touch one of these burdens yourself. 47, 47 and 48 together. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed him. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. There is a similar statement that may add clarification to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 29. Matthew 23, 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. What's their hypocrisy here? Their hypocrisy is, while they visit the tombs and decorate the tombs, they they put garlands on the tombs. While they do that in their regular rituals of visiting them, they are trying to say, these prophets were good prophets, and we are good followers of the prophets, and if we had lived in the days of the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, if we had lived in those days, we wouldn't have mistreated them. We would never have sought to put them to death. We would have embraced their oracles. We would have said, amen, that's the word of God. How can I obey it? I will obey it right now. That, that's the attitude they claim that they would have had in the days of the true prophets of God throughout the Old Testament. That's what they claim. But Jesus says, you think you are better than your ancestors who murdered the prophets, who persecuted the prophets? You think you're better? See, what's their problem? They don't understand human nature. Human nature is the same from Genesis to Revelation. From the beginning of the world to the end of the world, we're all lost, we're all sinners, we're all depraved and corrupt, and we need redemption. We need God to, by His special effective grace, change our heart, soften our hard heart, and grant us faith and repentance to believe in the gospel of Christ. We all need this. But they thought, no, that they were special people. They're just wonderful. Everybody should want me around. This is the way they thought of themselves. They had all the great wisdom. If anybody needs to know, they should go to them. Not go to the Bible, go to them to find out everything. This is what they thought of themselves. And they thought, If they lived in the past, they would not be like their murderous ancestors. When actually they were so blinded by their human wisdom, so intoxicated by their human wisdom, they did not think clearly and they did not speak clearly. Yes, it was their ancestors who murdered the prophets. You build up their tombs and pretend you're not the same when you actually are the same. Hypocrites, in other words. Then, 49, 49 to 51. A heap of judgment. A heap of judgment. A tidal wave of judgment is coming. 49. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, 
I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. The wisdom of God. Because these were uh, people who were recalcitrant, stubborn, unwilling to budge at all, God had a final blow, a big final blow to place on them, punishment to place on them, and it will culminate with that generation of Jesus. And what caused this to happen? It was the wisdom of God, verse 49. The wisdom of God to heap the final judgment on them for all the sins of the previous generation. Not that the previous generations did not pay a penalty. They did pay a penalty and will pay a penalty on the day of judgment. But the the finality of it, the widespread nature of it, the, the awesomeness of this judgment was to come on that generation that witnessed the miracles of Christ and the oracles of Christ. It would come on them. And this happens by the wisdom of God. Not the foolishness of God, not the injustice of God, but by the wisdom of God. God's wisdom ordained for this to happen. Let's also go back to Matthew 23 and see the parallel. The parallel in Matthew 23, 34. 23, 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Verse 34, the parallel here says, I am sending you. Jesus is sending prophets, wise men, and scribes, meaning believing true prophets, true wise men, and true scribes. Jesus is going to send these true believers, righteous men, to the wicked men. Jesus is going to send them, even though he knows what they're going to do, because he wants their sins to be heaped on them, the guilt of their sins to be heaped on them. Verse 35 says, it begins by saying that, which means in order that, that's a, introducing a purpose clause, in order that, for the purpose, that upon you, that generation, may fall uh, the guilt of all the righteous blood from the time of Abel in Genesis chapter 4 to the time of Zechariah in in Either, this is Zechariah the prophet, Zechariah the prophet in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the last one of the Old Testament, or this may mean Zechariah, who is in the book of Second Chronicles. In the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 24, this Zechariah was also, he was murdered. Uh, there are, there's a difference of interpretation as to which Zechariah Jesus meant. But w- whatever the case is, We do know that at the end of the Old Testament period, which would have been roughly about that time of 2 Chronicles 24, that that prophet was murdered, 
or the prophet of the Old Testament, Zechariah, in the book of Zechariah. He's saying, all of these righteous men, they suffered by preaching the gospel, the truth. And all the wicked men of the past, they murdered and persecuted them. Now, the culmination of all of that guilt is going to come on this generation, the generation of Jesus. How in, and in what way did that come? Well, it came in a token because 40 years later, within that generation, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. The temple and the, and the, the walls of Jerusalem were all destroyed. And the Jewish people were scattered out of Jerusalem and scattered into other parts of the land of Canaan or the land of Israel in that area in A.D. 70. Jesus was crucified about A.D. 30, and that, that happened in A.D. 70. And that temple of A.D. 70 that was built under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, that temple has not been rebuilt. There is no temple in Jerusalem, and there has been no temple since A.D. 70, about 2,000 years ago. And the people of Israel have not been able to maintain their land, their full land, or much of their land ever since then. Even now, since 1948, they don't possess all the land. They don't possess all the land. And many of the Jews still don't live in Israel. There are more Jews scattered throughout the world and in the United States than in Israel itself. They're not all living there, or most are, are not living there, because they rejected the Christ. They rejected the Messiah. That's the punishment. And this was intentionally done by God. He says, I am sending you, the wisdom of God is sending you, in order that this punishment might come on you. Because you deserve it. They sinned against God. Finally, verse 52, Luke eleven fifty-two. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. You have taken away the key of knowledge. They had that knowledge and the ability to explain that knowledge to the people, yet they didn't do it. They had the training, they had the knowledge, and some of them, as it says in the book of uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.2, some are able to teach. Some have been gifted by God to be able to communicate with clarity to people to understand what the Bible says, to do it accurately and clearly. Some have that gift. So some of them were gifted by God with all of this, with knowledge and with the ability to communicate that knowledge. Yet, they did not use the key. They hid the key. They buried the key. They would not let people enter into the house. They would not open the door of the house for the knowledge of salvation, so that they might receive the knowledge of the truth so as to be saved. They would not do that. They did not enter in themselves... And those who were entering in, you hindered. There were people who were trying to enter. They were curious, but you did not let them enter. Now, how is it that lawyers 
or those skilled in the Bible, those who know something of the Bible, prevent others from entering. What is it that they do that prevents them? Some of it is they don't share their knowledge. Some of it is they are pursuing ministry for the sake of a livelihood itself. It's their occupation or their job. And these days, people call ministry a job. It used to be, a couple of decades ago, when I was first getting into the ministry, people made a distinction between ministry and a job. Job meant a secular job. Not that you don't use the secular job to glorify God. Yes, we do. But ministry was ministry, and they didn't call it a job. Nowadays, they call it a job. They are synonyms. So when they are in it for the money and not for the ministry, then they will be reluctant to speak the truth. They will be doing whatever it takes to manage conflict, to smother and, and brush under the rug things that happen just to keep people happy and smug and, and making sure that the donations into the church come unobstructed. That's what they do, even though they know better. They've been trained better. Sometimes they've been trained better, and they don't do so. How else do they do it? Sometimes the problem is in the training. In academia, in Christian academia, there is an overwhelming, an overwhelming method that is practiced, and it is an ideology, and that's why the method is practiced that way, that is, they have the students in Bible colleges and seminaries reading a ton of books. Every course will require them to read 3, 4, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 books, depending on the kind of course it is. They have them inundated, literally drowning in the reading of those books, consultation of those books, citation of those books. The bigger the bibliography and the fatter the footnotes, the higher the grade. That's the way it works. And literally... Having been in academia for many years as a student and as a professor, it's also true that if you quote the Bible too much, your papers will be downgraded. If you quote the Bible and cite the Bible too much, whether in full quotations or just the references, either way, if you do it too much, then your paper will receive a lower grade. It happens all the time. I would hear of that happening in academia. I, I experienced it as a student, and I experienced it as a professor. It happens everywhere. And even in the evangelical, so-called, conservative, so-called, Baptist, so-called, Southern Baptist, so-called, whatever. It doesn't matter the denomination. It's widespread. Nobody is considered bright, intelligent, sophisticated, knowledgeable, if he's mainly using the Bible or only using the Bible. Nobody. That's the way this scribal mentality, this lawyer's mentality, the pharisaical mentality has permeated and infested academia, Christian academia. That's the way it is. <coughs> so how do they confuse the students? Well, you end up when you're reading a ton of books and not the Bible, you end up believing what's in the books when the books rarely or inaccurately cite the Bible. If they rarely or inaccurately cite the Bible, 
and you are engrossed in the books, you're not going to know what the true Word of God says unless you're reading the Bible. So you must consult the Bible. So what would these lawyers do? They would say, well, you know, Rabbi Jonathan ben Amiel, and then Rabbi um, uh, Joseph ben Reuben, and so on and so forth. He says, and he, he said, and he said, and he said, and his disciples said, and he said, and he said, this is the way it goes. That's no different in the ancient times. That's the way it happened. That's what the way it was happening in the time of Jesus. And that's the way it happens today. But today we do it by books usually. And it, then it is, this author says, and that author says, and this is quoted, and that is quoted. And the Bible is unknown. That happened actually in the time of Hosea, Hosea 12. 8, 12, he says, Though I gave to them 10,000 precepts of my law, yet they are regarded as a strange thing. The lawyers were not letting people enter the kingdom because they were making things cloudy and muddy by consulting other books instead of the Bible or the other books more than the Bible. Furthermore, they would do so with their rules and regulations, adding extra biblical expectations and laws and making the people think that if you did them, that God was pleased with you, when actually those things contradict the Bible and, and cloud the Bible, make the Bible's teaching about certain things unclear, confusing, both through the addition of commandments and also by the consultation of many books. This is what happens. People then come to the Bible and they say, I can't understand it. I don't know what it says. I don't know what it means. Yeah, it says light, but light might mean dark, or light might mean an elephant, or light might mean a monkey. No, light means light. So just figure out what light means in the context. We're not talking about a house or a monkey or an elephant. We're talking about light. But people, in order to make excuses to reject the Bible, to not believe the Bible, they'll say the Bible is unclear. And it's unclear because I just read 10 books on that passage and all 10 books contradict each other. So if they don't know and they have PhDs, then how can I know? People make excuses for sin that way and prevent people from entering into the kingdom of God. Now, after this denunciation of the lawyers, we read in verses 53 and 54, the consequence of this. And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now his enemies, they were hostile. It was more subtle. It was more internal. But now it's more open. It's very hostile. They are very, very bitterly hostile against Christ. Christ turned up the heat, and then the heat in them got turned up too. Jesus produced this result. Now, if we were of the world, and if we were of our own wisdom, we would say, well, Jesus was a miserable failure here. He was a miserable failure. Now, those in evangelical churches they won't say that. They won't admit that. Not typically. They won't do that. 
Yes, some in liberal churches will say that Jesus was not sinless. Yeah, people think he was, but they weren't. And then they make movies and books and then get those things published in Time magazine or interviews in 60 Minutes, right? The liberals, that's what they do. But even evangelicals or conservative Christians, we have this kind of a quiet, a quiet disdain for Jesus approach because it produced great hostility. And we think... Why did he? Why why did that happen? Oh, oh, when we make excuse, only Jesus can do that. Yeah, Jesus can talk that way, but we can't talk that way. Jesus can do that, but we can't do that. When actually that's absurd, because the rest of the Bible is written for our instruction for us to behave as the Bible commands us to behave. It says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but it said, even expose them, for it is shameful to even speak of the things which they do in secret, Ephesians 5, 5, 11 and 12 say, say that. So it tells us to expose them. It's talking to the church, expose them. So when you expose cancer, you have to call it cancer, right? If you expose a rat, if there's a, a pack of rats in, in, the, uh, in the house, in the rat hole in the house, you have to expose it. You have to call it, it's a rat hole. It's infested with 10 rats. You have to call it that. You can't say there's a box of chocolate over there. You have to call it for what it is. And when you expose it, you're going to have hostility and even extreme hostility. This was was not the first time Jesus experienced this. In Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, Jesus was in the synagogue. He announces that the prophecy of Isaiah has been fulfilled in the hearing of the worshipers. Then he says some nice things um, about this prophecy. Then he says that no prophet is welcome in his hometown, verse 24, which means he's implying he's a, a prophet. Then he compares the time of Elijah and Elisha when foreigners were helped, but not the Hebrew people. The Jews were not helped, but foreigners were helped. And when they heard those two examples, Elijah and Elisha, verse 28, And all all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. By passing through their midst, he went his way. What did Jesus do in that passage? He compared... Elijah and Elisha and the, and the benefit that they conveyed to these two foreigners, one woman and one man, two foreigners, they didn't like that. They didn't even like him citing the incident. All he did was cite the incidents. He didn't say, woe to you. He didn't call them whitewashed tombs. He didn't say they're full of dead men's bones. He didn't say, you clean the outside but inside you're full of all kinds of filthiness. He didn't say anything like that. He didn't. He was just descriptive. And yet they were filled with rage. Which will also happen if we do that. Jesus was just descriptive and they were filled with rage and wanted to murder him, throw him off the cliff. In this case, he turned up the heat. He was quite descriptive uh, and He was saying what they were personally. 
in the first case in Luke 4, he was speaking generally. And in this case, he tells them exactly what their sins are, which he did not do in Luke 4. And even here, they were very hostile, very hostile toward him. Even when he identified who he was, in John 8, 59 and John 10, 31, he identified himself as possessing a divine nature, called himself I am in John 8, 58. And then in John 10, 30, he called, he said, we, uh, I and the Father, we are one, meaning he possessed a divine nature just like the Father. And in both cases, John 8, 59 and 10, 31, they picked up stones to throw at him because they wanted to kill him because they perceived that he was committing blasphemy. They wanted to kill him for identifying who he was, which will happen to us too. The moment we identify ourselves as Christians and we seek to practice righteousness in word and deed, people will become hostile, even if we don't say anything to them. Even if we don't say anything to them about their sin, if we don't call them hypocrites, they'll still be hostile toward us. And finally, verse 54. They were questioning him on many subjects, and then it says, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. When they were asking questions closely on many subjects, it wasn't because they had a genuine curiosity. It wasn't because they were sincere and they were trying to understand God and the Christian life. It wasn't because they were sincerely trying to seek to know how to proclaim the gospel or how to minister to somebody in need, or how to deal with a conflict in their family or in friendships. It wasn't like that. They did not have a sincere question. They asked many questions because they were plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Sincere questions in the Bible are not objectionable, but insincere ones are. That's what theirs were. They were trying to catch him in something he might say. Luke 19, Luke 19, 47. Luke 19, 47. After Jesus had announced some things about the future and even had uh, removed the money changers out of the temple, it says in Luke 19, 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words. Because the majority of people were hanging upon his words, they could not find anything in his words to contradict him. To contradict him because the people clearly knew what he was teaching, so they did not want to dare contradict Jesus in front of all the people. And also, Luke 20, Luke 20, verse 19. Jesus announced the parable of the vine growers. He announces the parable of the vine growers and calls his enemies to account. And verse, 20, uh, verse 19, Luke 20, verse 19. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. 
and they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governor. They were trying to catch him. They were looking and seeking his every word in order to nitpick his every word. Yes, nitpick. It says in Jude 16 that false teachers, it says, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude 16. They are fault finders, nitpickers. These are people who are looking at words, phrases, in order to find something in order to destroy the speaker. This happens often in politics, does it not? It often happens between the media and certain politicians. They look for ways to trap the politician so that they can run with the statement he makes and then accuse him falsely of something he says. Well, it not only happens in politics, it happens in religion all the time. And this is, Jesus experienced this, and we also will. That's why it says in Jude 16, it's warning us that it might happen to us, and it will happen to us when we're trying to be faithful to God. They will catch us in something in order to destroy us, in order to isolate us, in order to ridicule us and taunt us and to marginalize us. This is what they will do. Now, when they do these things, as we said in the beginning, we need to follow Jesus' method. Not only what Jesus believed, but how he behaved. We must be those people who do not defer to individuals, that we're not partial to the rich, nor partial to the poor. We should not be partial to anybody. We have to speak the truth as it is from the Bible, whatever the Bible says. So may God give us this ability to be like Christ in every way, following in his footsteps. He left us an example that we might follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2, 21-22. Let's be that way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.